So let us hear then God's word, 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. <clears throat> May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. <clears throat> well, last time we... Um, you might say reviewed the bigger picture, and we brought the argument of Second Samuel in many ways to its climax, and that is the coronation of David over all Israel. This crowning, in a way, was centuries in the making, not merely 22 and a half years. This man, after God's own heart, is from the seed of the woman and from the seed of Abraham, and is in many ways the scepter of Judah, long awaited. He is the, de the descendant of Ruth and Boaz. He is, of course, the replacement of Saul. And so, in a way, we can look at this crowning of David as something that has been centuries in the making. But, of course, for all of the hype, David is not the king that we long for. He is just another one along the way, you might say. And so the greater son of David, a thousand years later, is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and the scepter of Judah. Now let me also say this by way of acknowledgement. Uh, afterward, last time, my family said, hey, you misspoke last week or two weeks ago. I guess at one point I said Ahab instead of Abner, so apologize for that. They also had questions for me about BCE, and they're like, oh, I thought it meant before the common era, and you may recall I said before the Christian era, and as I was reflecting on that, I, I'm sure I heard it described that way probably in seminary. And I, I was wondering if possibly there was a transition of the terminology and such um, uh, over a few years or something like that. But my pet peeve becomes even more uh, of a peeve. <laughs> um, uh, before the common era is even less Christian than before the Christian era. Uh, and yet I still like BC, before Christ. He is the turning point of history. But anyway, um, so a brief word on that. You also recall then uh, that we focused on the elements of the covenant and this covenant between David and Israel. And so we briefly reviewed those seven different elements. And uh, we see in this that though David is divinely chosen, the people still must consent, which they did here finally after seven and a half years. And so David now is 37 and a half years old. 22 and a half years since his first anointing by Samuel, seven and a half years since he was anointed in Hebron there in uh, the southern tribes. 
All right, so we now come to the next major section of the book. And it starts here in chapter 5, verse 6, and takes us through chapter 10. So <clears throat> we have these variety of things in this chapter. We'll look at it more in a moment. And then in chapter 6, we're going to see David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And, of course, uh, preparing for the temple and so forth. Uh, in chapter 7, we have God's covenant with David, which others may argue is the pinnacle of, of this book. Uh, in chapter 8, we see David's uh, conquest over the enemies. Chapter 9, uh, Mephibosheth. Chapter 10, more victories. And so you, basically, this section is all about the wonderful things that happened with David. Chapter 11 will take us in a different direction. Uh, but in this section, we have all these wonderful things. So, right, you have the end of 1 Samuel, David running, God providing. We have the beginning of 2 Samuel, David being established as king. And now here, all the wonderful, wonderful things that happened under David and his rule. Too bad it doesn't stay that way. All right, now here in chapter 5 itself, we see verses 6 to 8. Our focal point tonight, David's conquest of Jebus. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see David establishing Jerusalem as the new capital. Verses 11 and 12, David is blessed by the foreign king Hiram of Tyre. And that event was at least probably 25 or 30 years later than what we talked about last time. Uh, verses 13 to 16, David has more wives and children. And obviously, this takes place over a period of time. And then verses 17 to 25, the Philistines come out to fight against David, and he defeats them. Um, you recall that, as we saw last week, or again, two weeks ago, um, that uh, over 340,000 people plus uh, soldiers came to Hebron for the coronation of David as the new king. Now, the Philistines would have been content to have two kings in Israel, but not now. And so David, especially with this massive military turnout, would have been a huge threat to the Philistines. Some have tried to make the case that the event against the Philistines was chronologically the next event. Not what we see here with Jebus, but uh, what happened against the Philistines. All right, so let me develop that question here just a little bit. Um, if you uh, look at a map here, I'll be using the land of the 12 tribes map here again. Uh, let me uh, just say a few words in this way. Um, and if you look at verse 17 here in chapter 5, it says this, When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it, went down to the stronghold. Um. <clears throat> That suggests uh, that David was maybe a little hard to find. If he's established in Jebus by now, Jerusalem, then uh, that seems a bit odd. And to go down to the stronghold, if he has his new stronghold in Zion, why would he go to another one? Um, and so uh, here are a couple clues that would suggest then that um, maybe this event did happen before the situation of conquering the Jebusites. Uh, if you look at a map here now, and you see where Hebron is, uh, you see where En Gedi is. We don't know which stronghold David went to, but maybe it's one he went to before. We know he went to the ones near En Gedi along the Dead Sea there, the Salt Sea. 
Um, and so here are some <clears throat> arguments in that way. In verse 18, it says the Philistines went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. And that valley, if you see where Jerusalem is, and you see where Beth Shemesh is, the valley runs from basically Jerusalem south of Beth Shemesh. You can see it from Mount Zion. Um, and so that may suggest David is there. It may also suggest that David is in Hebron and they're trying to cut him off. So there's some debate in this way. What is clear is that the Philistines are not happy that now David has a united Israel. And so they seek to attack him. Um, since verses 11 and 12 are clearly out of chronological order, um, it would suggest that maybe this is too. Um, let's turn a moment then to First Chronicles, and um, let's turn to chapter 11 here first. Uh, you may recall from last time, the anointing of David is in verses 1 to 3, and then you also recall in chapter 12, we see that lengthy description of all the people that came to David in his coronation. All right, <clears throat> well, um, in between... <laughs> We have David conquering Jebus, and then you see in chapter 13 about the ark, okay. and then it's not until chapter 14 that the description of the Philistine attack happens. Remember, the ark was in two stages, so the rest of it is in chapter 15, okay, and so forth. So um, anyway, there's about a, a bunch of questions here, and uh, and so on. I'm inclined to agree with the view that David conquered Jebus first, and the Philistines then came later. But uh, the other view is out there, whichever it is. As we come back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, topically speaking, the author, Nathan or Gad or whoever it was, thought that the most important first thing to mention in this section of David's success is the conquering of Jebus. That's what he wants us to focus on, first of all, because this is the establishment not only of a political center, but this is going to be the place of God's house, too. And so he begins with this. So, um, <clears throat> the um, again, as you're looking at your maps here, you see how Hebron was a, a pretty logical place to have the capital of uh, David's rule in the south. It's not exactly in the middle, but it's generally in the middle here in regard to Judah and to Simeon. But when you consider all of Israel, it's a bit too far to the south. And so to move it does seem to make sense. Maybe Shechem would be a good place. That might be even more centralized. And of course, the connections with Jacob and so forth would make some sense there. Um, but instead, David chooses this location uh, basically between Judah and Benjamin. Technically, it was in Benjamin, but right along the border. So um, <clears throat> it seems like David is being politically shrewd here. The tribe that held out the longest, of course, was Saul's tribe. And so David puts his new capital city in Saul's tribe. And you may remember back in chapter 3, I suggested the idea that maybe, text does not tell us, but maybe Abner used the Jebusites as kind of a bargaining chip to convince the Benjamites to follow David. Maybe 
there was some discussion, David, if you go defeat the Jebusites, the Benjamites will join you. Um, we're not told that, okay? We're speculating. But it is interesting that the very first thing in this new section, and of course, David going to Jerusalem, rather than Shechem or even Shiloh, um, does seem to give some credence to the thought. All right, so one last thing here in this way. Um, here in our own country, uh, people very deliberately tried to do the same kind of thing. As you may recall, uh, earlier in the history of our country, the capital was in Philadelphia, New York City, you know, some different places, and they end up, ended up settling in Washington, D.C., as we know it now, a place somewhat in between others, and with the 13 colonies more or less in the middle. And so uh, there were some very deliberate, uh, intentional connections with David and Jerusalem. All right. Well, a few uh, background and foundational and overview things here as we begin this new part. So let's now look at uh, verse 6. And it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. All right. Um, <clears throat> David and his men. Are we talking about the 600 men that were with him for so long? Maybe. He now has over 340,000 men that have just helped to anoint him as king. Is that what we're talking about? Well, uh, for, sorry, I forgot to uh, remind you of this, but back in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, um, in verses 4 to 9, we see a, the corresponding parallel passage. And in 1 Chronicles 4, uh, excuse me, 11, verse 4, it says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem. So maybe it's some of both. Maybe 340,000 came. But the 600 kind of led the way. Certainly Joab does. And so uh, maybe it's a little bit of both. Recall that during the conquest, there was over 600,000 men. They could not defeat Jebus. And so maybe they're thinking we need all 340 plus thousand. Now remember that Jebus, or Jerusalem, is a very old city. Um, Remember that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is a reference to Jerusalem. That's about 1,100 years prior to this event. Um, also, it says here um, in 2 Samuel about the inhabitants of the land. So let's uh, refresh our memory on this here briefly. Back in Joshua chapter 15. <clears throat> Joshua 15, this is uh, um, after the the conquest, and now they're dividing up the land. At the end of the chapter, Joshua 15, verse 63 says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. And then if you turn over to Judges chapter 1, you remember that Joshua tends to focus on all the positives, right? the glass half full kind of approach, whereas Judges is the opposite. It highlights some of the failures. 
And, uh, and so here in Judges 1, note verse 8 says, Now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it, and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Well, I thought they weren't successful. Isn't that what we just read? If you look down at verse 21, And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem, so the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Well, I thought it was Judah that didn't drive them out. You know. So how do we fit all this together? Uh, of course, you have those who say, see, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, but there is no reason for us to go down that path. Most likely, and you may recall me saying this before, uh, when we looked at these two books, but it is most likely that Judah conquered the lower levels of the city of Jerusalem, what was outside of the city walls. And they could not conquer beyond that within the city, and the Benjamites could not either. And so Jebus itself was preserved, but the surrounding, can you say, suburbs were defeated. And so I lean in that direction. I'm certainly not the only one who would say something like that in terms of how to fit it together. Well, <clears throat> now we come to what's left. And David is trying to conquer and defeat what is remaining. And for 400 years, the Jebusites had held out. Yeah, that'd be like, uh, uh, you know, America in the um, fight against England and such, and, you know, a portion that was not ever fully conquered or something to that effect. Uh, now, obviously, there are differences, but uh, something to that effect. Now, as for Jebus, a few words about it. Uh, it was only about 11 or 12 acres in size at the time. So it's roughly 400 feet by 1,500 feet at its widest and longest. So right, that's, that's not that big. At the most, it could house about 3,500 people maybe closer to 1,500. And uh, it was surrounded on three sides, still is, of course, <clears throat> by deep valleys. And so it was hard to defeat. And the only real access was, access was on the southern side. And there was a wall, and archaeology has shown that it was likely eight feet thick at this point. And so, hence, they held out for 400 years. And now are confident that they will succeed again. And so, David then is basically seeking to finish what Joshua started. David is seeking to do what Judah and Benjamin had not finished. The conquest was not completed, but David will now do so. But David's actions also connect us back to Abraham. So let's turn a moment to Genesis chapter 15. The first time we see this promise spelled out in this way, Certainly we see the idea back in Genesis 12, um, but here now in much more detail. Remember this is when Abraham was questioning and, and doubting and so forth, and God came to him, and Adam lay out the animals, and God passed between the cut animals as this uh, burning torch, and Abraham is sleeping. And in verse 18, it says about the Lord making the covenant with Abram, and he says, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Uh, when we see lists like this, Jebusites are often at the end. And in part that's because 
It's not until now that David defeats them. And, of course, Solomon then extends the land to the great river. And so uh, God's promises had not yet been fulfilled. But now they're a step closer to that. And again, under Solomon, we see it really at its fullest and its most fulfilled um, until we come to the New Testament and the fulfillments in Christ. All right, so... Uh, David here then is seeking <clears throat> this more centralized location. There's a key east-west road from the Jordan to the Mediterranean and a north-south road from Beersheba to Bashan that passed right by Jerusalem. So it's good for trade, good for travel, uh, good for the military, good for worship. Obviously it's well defended. David now is going to take over this place and it's well watered by the Gihon Spring. And so basically, it's a perfect location. All right, so again, some background here. And I developed this because of the primacy of Jerusalem from here on out, uh, in many ways, in the scriptures as a whole. So David now comes with his men, either 600 or 340,000, and they come to the city who then boasts and says, even the blind and lame can defeat you. And that's probably how we should understand this. Notice they first command David not to come in. And then they boast about the blind and the lame. There is some debate here. Uh, some people will say something different. Uh, some will say something along the lines that the blind and the lame could still throw stones over the wall and kill them at the gate. Others say uh, anyone who attacks Jebus will be cursed and become blind and lame. But uh, the, the general consensus, and I would say this is probably true, that the idea is that even the weak could defeat David. Hey, I'll beat you with my little pinky finger or something. Or Matthew's basketball team could defeat the Detroit Pistons or something to that effect. Uh, though I guess they did win yesterday, right, finally. Um, the idea simply is that no one can defeat us, not even David. All right, now, think of all that I've just laid forth for us. 400 years, all of these defeats by Judah and Benjamin and so on and so forth. And now verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. That's it. No big deal. Ho-hum. David won. Do you, do you see the presentation here? And that's because, of course, <clears throat> God had promised this. And now in God's timing, it's going to happen. Prior to this, it isn't going to work. I mean, how many times do we do this, right? We pray for something. We pray that God fulfills promises and nothing happens, even for generations. But certainly in our own lifetime, it can be for years and years. We're praying and it's not going to happen. All of a sudden, boom, there it is. And so do you see that emphasis here? Ho-hum. It's not the 600,000 men that could do it. It's not the 400 years of waiting. Hey, it's okay, here it is. David wins. And it's because, verse 10, the end of the verse, the Lord God of hosts was with him. And that is exactly the same thing today. When God is with us, there is success. And even when God is with us and there is not success, it's just because it's not his timing. 
it's not in his plans for that immediate moment. All right, so <clears throat> the other thing to note here about this verse is Zion is now mentioned for the first time in the Bible. And obviously it's going to be mentioned many more. Uh, we believe that Zion refers to the fortress, the stronghold itself here of Jebus. And uh, we believe it was on the southeastern side of the city. So if you ever uh, see a picture of Jerusalem itself, uh, you, you look at the southeastern uh, side of it, and that's likely where it was. But of course, as typically is done even today, when a place is conquered and defeated, the name of the king is given to that place. And so it is now the city of David. All right. Well, in many ways, we could move forward and say, okay, here's our point. Let's learn from it. Uh, but verse 8 gives us a little more detail. Uh, maybe somebody added this later. Maybe Nathan or Gad said, okay, I want to give you this main point here, right? David wins. Uh, now let me give you a little information of how it happened. Verse 8. And David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. All right, now first of all, if you have another translation, you'll see that there are some differences there. You'll see here in the New King James, they add the language of he shall be chief and captain. You see how it's in italics. And so there are some uh, questions here. One more connection to First Chronicles chapter 11. In verse 6, it says, Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusite shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zerari, went up first and became chief. There is no textual question here. And so most likely what happened is that people started um, trying to put them together. Um, even the New King James translators put it together by adding these words to clarify the point. And so in this case, there's no you know, apparent contradiction. It's just First Chronicles uh, gives us a little bit more information than Second Samuel. But Second Samuel gives us more information about this water shaft. Uh, and if you read the rest there in Chronicles, it doesn't tell us that. All right, so how did this happen? And there are some more questions. Did Joab, right, the one that killed Abner, did he climb up the shaft or did he block the water? The Hebrew literally says, let him touch by the water shaft. What does that mean? Let him touch by the water shaft. Well, the general consensus among uh, conservative scholars anyway is that he actually did climb up the shaft into the city and led his people there, and they defeated the Jebusites. Uh, if they blocked up the water, you would suspect that's more of a siege move, right? And it would take longer, um, but it is possible. But I'm inclined to go with uh, the climbing. So if you do have this outline here, you'll see the diagram that I have for you on the right side, and I apologize, the top of it didn't copyright, so I used my pen uh, to help with that. Uh, do you see where the city wall is described, that double vertical line? And you see where the spring is in comparison. The spring is much lower into the Kidron uh, Valley, outside of the city wall. 
This is the Gihon Spring, and uh, yet they use this to water the city. Okay. And so notice, they went down a steep tunnel steps to a, a more level area of a tunnel, a gradual tunnel that descended a little farther. By the time they come to Warren Shaft, and he's the one who found it, um, they're about halfway down to the water source. And so in this shaft then, they would lower their buckets down to this lower tunnel and they would right, get their water and take it back to their homes or whatever. The shaft itself is about 40 to 50 feet in depth. And the spring was not just a continuous spring. It would gush three or four times a day for about 40 minutes in length. And when it would gush, it would fill this lower tunnel and it was during that time they would lower the buckets, they would get their water and take them back uh, into the city. So, if we're right here, then when it was not gushing, um, Joab and his men came in and climbed up this water shaft. Um, obviously, on the outside, they would try to um, conceal it so it wasn't an obvious entrance and so forth but David and his men somehow found it and this is how uh, they accessed it. Um, uh, some have said that maybe they use scaling hooks and that's how we should translate one of these Hebrew words and yeah, it's certainly a possibility. But uh, there are questions here, there's debate here, but it is likely that this is how they entered into the city. All right, now, <clears throat> what about the lame and the blind? Why this emphasis? Okay, we, we see uh, the statement there in verse 6, and now here it is again. David hates them. And then it says at the end of the verse, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. What in the world is that all about? Well, in chapter 9, remember Mephibosheth comes into David's house, and he is lame. Um... Some have tried to make the connection with the temple, and any blemished person could not enter into the temple, especially as priest. So I lean toward those who say this is an eye for an eye connection. You have the, the blind and the lame who are uh, opposing David, and so now David hates them, and there is this judgment upon them. Um, at least in terms of the commentators that I read, I didn't find any convincing argument uh, on any of these. Um, there is a Jebusite mentioned at the very end in chapter 24. Maybe that has a place. But I'm inclined to think that this is the point. Let's turn to Psalm 139 here a moment. <clears throat> Psalm 139. And we are uh, very familiar, of course, with this psalm. Uh, that basically God is everywhere, and uh, especially verses 13 and following we use for the abortion issue and so forth, and okay. Uh, but remember verses 19 to 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies, including the blind and the lame. Of 
course, I added that last part. So I'm inclined to think uh, and agree with those who would say that David hates those who hate Yahweh. The Jebusites hate Yahweh and hate Yahweh's king. They are trying to throw off David's bonds, you might say. And so David responds here in this way. All right, now let me bring our thoughts to a close here tonight like this. First of all, the main point. Though it took a few centuries since Joshua and over a thousand years since Abraham, God is fulfilling his promises. We sit here on the cusp of a new year. It's the same God, isn't it? God keeps his promises for us as we transition into a new year, as we have dated things and so on and so forth. God does not change. We can trust him. As he did here with David and Jebus, he does the same kinds of things for us today. Maybe we're not conquering a peoples over here in another county or something like that. But God is still faithful to his promises to us today. And so we can rest in him and trust him. Trust as we wait, especially, and as the enemy has victory, maybe even for centuries. We still can trust God, and and we see that here in this way. All right, now the second thing here as we bring things to a conclusion, let's turn back to Deuteronomy and chapter 12. Obviously, the text itself does not say this, uh, but certainly in our broader uh, look, um, this is certainly true. So in Deuteronomy 12, okay, note especially verse 5, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, and so on and so forth, right? So initially, from Joshua up till this point, right, it's been Shiloh. Again, you may want to look at your map, see where that is, remind yourself and such. That's where God had placed his name in the tabernacle. Now remember, the ark was used as a good luck charm and against the Philistines, and the Philistines took it. They sent it back, remember the cart and all the tumors and all that, and it ends up in Kiriath-Jerim. And David is going to then bring it from there in chapter 6 to Jerusalem because David, presumably led by the Spirit, of course, is changing the place where God has put his name. It is not the new Shiloh that descends on the mountain in Revelation 21. It's the new Jerusalem. And so there's this transition from Shiloh to Jerusalem, and David's defeat of the Jebusites is obviously part of that uh, transition. Maybe God had them wait 400 years to highlight this massive change. And of course, David starts it, Solomon brings it, to its zenith there with the building of the temple and so on. But this, uh, these few verses here in 2 Samuel 5 have far-ranging import. Um, and uh, here's a connection here in this way. And so uh, the place of God's worship is not in Shiloh. Okay? It's not 
in Samaria, remember John 4, uh, it's in Jerusalem. But even now, with the coming of Christ, it's not even in Jerusalem, not as a physical location. It's right here tonight, among many other places throughout the world. All right, now one more thing. Let's turn then to Psalm 2. You may recall when I preached through this psalm, I made some of these points. Obviously, Psalm 2 points us to Christ, but it did have an initial application for David. When was Psalm 2 written? When did David write this? Okay, is it after uh, they conquered Jebus, Joab climbed up the water shaft, presumably so, in light of what is said. Was it written that day? Was it written a few weeks later? We don't know for sure. But read now, listen to Psalm 2 in light of 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 through 8. Why do the nations rage, including the Jebusites, and the people plot a vain thing, even the blind and the lame? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, David, here initially, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Right? Even the blind and the lame can defeat David. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Remember verse 7, how uh, David won. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Again, initially, this is David. The greater David is our ultimate fulfillment. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Even here, Jebus and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And so David begins this here in Zion. Solomon continues this in Zion. And the nation certainly did come to Zion, especially under Solomon. But all of this points ultimately to Christ and even uh, to us coming to him uh, here in this way. But notice how it ends. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. David did so. And so this impenetrable fortress was defeated and became the place of God's house, not just David's. So here are a few thoughts from this passage, trying to show you some of the broader import of it as well. Um, and so let's uh, pray here uh, as we conclude. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, all these events. We thank you for um, the conquering of Jebus and uh, all that that means, not just for the initial uh, days and weeks and years of David's rule, but uh, later with the temple and even later with Jesus coming and establishing a new temple. And even for us, 
as we are now the temple of God here, this place, us individually, and certainly as we anticipate um, heaven itself, the new Jerusalem, the new Jebus, as it were, the heavenly Mount Zion. Lord, we are thankful that you are the God in whom we can trust, that you are the one who has pieced all of this together from our perspective, from Abraham to now, it's over 4,000 years, and you are still keeping your promises, and you have made us, by your grace, sons and daughters of Abraham, and even uh, descendants of David, so to speak, in this way. And so, Lord, we thank you, and uh, we praise you for being our God. And as we um, uh, count down the moments of the end of 2023 and transition to the next year, we are thankful, Lord, that um, we don't have to drink away the fears of the future. Uh, we don't have to hedonistically ignore your sovereign control over uh, every day of our lives, but we can rest in the fact that you are our God from day to day, from year to year. And uh, as you fulfilled your promises here in this way with David, um, you do the same for us, and uh, we thank you and praise you for it. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.